Welcome to the Pencils and Lipstick Podcast, a weekly podcast for writers. Grab a cup of coffee, perhaps some paper and pen, and enjoy an interview with an author, a chat with a writing tool creator, perhaps a conversation with an editor or other publishing expert, as well as Kat's thoughts on writing and her own creative journey. You'll laugh, you'll cry, well, hopefully not actually cry, but you will probably learn something. And I hope you'll be inspired to write. Because as I always say, you have a story, you should write it down. This is Pencils and Lipstick. Today's episode is brought to you by Publisher Rocket. Do you know Publisher Rocket? It's one of my favorite tools. Publisher Rocket gives you the edge on Amazon KDP by finding profitable keywords and best-selling categories for your book. See what hungry readers search for on Amazon with Rocket, letting you optimize your seven KDP keywords for more sales. Not every keyword is effective, you know, and Rocket can show you which ones are searched for most often are less competitive and which ones earn more money. Plus, with its AMS ads feature, Rocket generates thousands of advertising keywords in seconds, which will give you profitable keywords so that your ads can make an impact. And if you're going to spend money on Amazon ads, you want them to make an impact. With Rocket, you can discover applicable hidden categories that most authors don't know about on Amazon, which will increase the chance that browsing shoppers stumble on your work and decrease your competition. Find out how many sales it takes to become a bestseller in each category, as well as how much other authors are earning off of their Amazon books every month. Not only that, but Rocket has a phenomenal support staff filled with real experienced people to help you on your journey. Rocket comes with a 30 day, no questions asked guarantee. So you can try it without any risk. It has a single fee with no subscription. My favorite thing these days so you only have to pay once for full lifetime access to all its features. New readers can only enjoy your work if they find it among the thousands of other books published every day on Amazon. Great authors deserve to be read, so don't let your book languish in obscurity. Get your book noticed with Publisher Rocket. Now guys, Publisher Rocket is one of those tools that I avoided buying for the longest time, and I highly regret it. I don't know why I was really, really tight budgeted in the beginning, but Publisher Rocket is an amazing tool. I highly suggest you check it out. There is going to be a link below in the show notes for you to check it out. And as they say, there is a 30 day, no questions asked guarantee. But more than that, they have videos on how to use it properly, tons of suggestions, They're really great over there. You can make sure that you use your keywords correctly, your categories correctly, so that your book can just bump up from, you know, wherever it is in the black hole of Amazon, right up in front of the correct reader's face so that they can find it, they can read it, they can review it, and you can keep selling more books. Check out the links below to find Publisher Rocket, find out more information. There's also going to be a link to a blog post, which will give you even more information about it below in the show notes. Hey, everybody. Welcome to 
pencils, and lipstick. I have a big show for you today. I talk with Stephen Woodfin. He is a writer and a book coach. And we definitely took our time going through um, the things about writing, about being an indie author, why or why not you, you might want to get a book coach, and so much more. For that reason, and because I'm slightly losing my voice, I am going to get straight into the interview today. If you guys are enjoying Pencils and Lipstick, this is a value for value podcast. And what does that mean? That means that I try to bring you value every single week with writing tips, interviews with authors, interviews with people in the publishing world, and more. In exchange, I would love it if you would subscribe, give a review on the app that you listen to the podcast on, and share it with all your writer and even reader friends. If you want to go even further and support the podcast, you can click the link below to buymeacoffee.com forward slash pencils lipstick. Over there, you can choose to become a recurring donor or a one-time donor, and in exchange, you get a couple goodies and you get access to the video interviews. Now, I'm going to introduce formally Stephen Woodfin, and we'll get into the show. When Stephen Woodfin decided to become a novelist, he hired a book coach. That was over a million words ago. 10 novels, scores of short stories, and hundreds of blogs. He's narrated audiobooks on ACX and produced a podcast for writers. And now, just like his book coach, Stephen Woodfin would like to help you. In this episode, we talk about Stephen's writing career as well as his book coaching career and what a book coach could mean for you. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Pencils and Lipstick. And we are celebrating the 150th episode. And I have with me Stephen Woodfin. Hi, Stephen. Hello, everybody. I'm proud to be here on the 150th edition. <laughs> yeah, it's kind, it kind of like shows that we've gone to three years, kind of, you know. Wow. <laughs> now, that's a, that's a really notable, uh, uh, you know, thing to do because a lot of people, I had a podcast that lasted 25 episodes and I thought I had worked real hard at it. So I, my, my hat's off to you. Well, thank you. Yes, I think around 25, I thought about quitting. So <laughs> That's when you realize how much work it is every single week. Um, well, thank you, Stephen, for coming on and talking with us. I know that you are a writer and a book coach. So we're going to talk about both of those things. Um, but, but before we get into our conversation, do you want to just tell people a little bit about who you are? And I think we might assume you're from Texas, but <laughs> I can't imagine that. You can't imagine why. <laughs> well, uh, I'm from Texas. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, I am from Texas. Uh, well, a little bit of a, about my bio. Uh, uh, I started when I went to college to begin with. I was a music major. Then I became a religion major, and then somewhere down the road. Uh, I uh, went to law school and started practicing law. Oh my gosh. So, so I've had a pretty varied career. I've got a bachelor's in religion and a master of divinity degree from Southeastern Seminary in Wake Forest, North Carolina, and a law degree from Baylor. And then about uh, 15 years ago or so, I decided I wanted to become serious about writing because I always considered myself a, a want to be writer. 
okay. down through the years. And I started really focusing on, you know, doing stuff. And when I did that, I hired a coach. So there's a, there's the intro to what we could talk about <laughs> it's next. To all of it. Okay. So I assume in, in the, um, in both of those, in both, um, the religious degrees and the law degrees, you're writing a lot. Like, so writing has probably been a part of your life for ever since college. Yeah. And, I, and I've always, I've noticed on your site that you talk about journaling and do some things like that. I've done a lot of journaling down through mm -hmm. the years, but when I, what I decided to write, I really, the kind of writing that you're talking about is all, you know, for lack of a better term, nonfiction or mm. uh, kind of, constrained by the the areas of expertise that you're talking about like you're writing in the law you're you're either drafting petitions for court or you're writing articles or you're writing appeals or something okay. but not anything where you can really let your hair down and and do some creative stuff so there was kind of a break there where i went into creative writing or that's what i'd always wanted to do and it's uh i mean it's just one of my real loves i've always loved doing it so did you want to go straight into commercial fiction? Like what what do you what genre do you write or what did you start out writing what do you write now is there a difference? Um not there's there are similarities. Okay. There've been there's been some uh development in my my writing down through the years but I started just writing legal thrillers. Mm. And of course, anybody that's an attorney thinks they're going to be the next John Grisham, right? So right. Uh, it, there's a lot more to it than that, I found out. Uh, but I started writing le uh, legal thrillers. They they have some bleed over into some of these other topics that I have that I had studied. And then uh, down through the years, I've kind of developed into, I guess, a little bit more noir. I call it Southern noir fiction is probably where oh, okay. I am right now like it, oh my goodness now i'm gonna forget the title of that movie midnight in the in the garden in the garden in the garden of good news yeah <laughs> is that kind of yeah like, yeah okay. well if if you go back historically it's it's the guys like dashiell hammett and uh uh jim thompson uh even john d mcdonald and some of those guys uh they were kind of the dime store novels of their day that sold millions and millions of copies right uh i, I sometimes refer to what i write as e-pulp fiction okay uh, because it's kind of geared towards the ebook side of the equation and it's uh you know pretty short reads I, i'm not a 500 page novel writer guy i just i don't i don't have that vibe going i'd much rather write a book that's in the 50 to 65,000 word range than in the 100,000 word range or even 80,000. I mean, there's something to say for that. If you can write a, a nice, concise story that is fully finished in that amount of words, I think that that's a quite, the, quite the craftability, honestly, because I think a lot of us keep writing words in order to sort of fill whatever hole got dug <laughs> in the first 25,000, you know? Yeah, yeah. So how did you um well first can you what is what is the appeal to this like this southern noir thing? Is it because like on the outside the southerners are so everything looks kind of pretty? 
And then you sort of go underneath. I mean, I love this. I love Texas. I lived there for five years. But but there's like there's certain areas like you wouldn't write the same thing probably on the East Coast. You know, up like there's a more there's a more harsh feel culture, more sort of in your face honesty <laughs> over here now. Now that I'm in DC, I'm like, oh, the cultures in America are different. But it seems to be yeah. a Southern noir. Th- you know, that seems to be the area that we have that sort of. Um, genre. What do you think it is that appeals well, to it? Well, it's it's a real interesting question, and to me, having grown up in the South and spent nearly all my life, virtually all my life in the South, uh, it's just what I. It's the way I think. You know, the way I view things. Okay, it's my perspective. But uh, I was thinking before I came on this morning, thinking about uh, what what I'd actually call what I'm writing now. And I would, I would say they're kind of coming of age stories for adults. Okay. You know, because we're in a situation in our country, I don't want to politicize it, uh, but we have very deep divides in a lot of different ways. Yeah. And then if you're growing up in the South, you were on the wrong side of a lot of those uh, debates historically. And as, as it starts working on you as a, as a person, well, then it also informs your writing, uh, mm. what you're doing. And when you start digging down into that character, you're digging down into those layers of of things that the South is proud of and shouldn't be proud of. Yeah. It kind of goes into, it's an interesting time, I think, in the world even, of of recognizing maybe some of the things that we're proud of. Why? Maybe asking why, <laughs> you know, and mm. and being able to sort of like, and not only answer the question, but maybe dissect out the ability to be proud of a country without agreeing with everything the country does. Maybe. <laughs> well, sure, sure, and that's uh, well. I give you an I give you an example. The book that I, is my it's a book I have finished, but I've got it beta readers mm. right now, and uh, I'm working on the second book in in that series, but. Uh, the working title on that book is Self-Awareness is a Bitch. <laughs> that's so true. <laughs> and that's what we're talking about, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, as long as you just stay, if you if you think that your mom is the only cook, is the way one guy put it to me, people that think that their mother is the only cook have their first birthday when they realize that's not the case. <laughs> that that there's, a whole, there's a big world out there that thinks differently about things than you do. And you, yeah. It's about the courage to be willing to change. I, I call that book a cross between uh, white fragility and to kill a mockingbird. Oof. Okay. That's going to challenge a lot of people then. Well, I mean, uh, as we say in the book business, except nobody will ever know about it, right? <laughs> <laughs> there are no more diamond stores out there. Um, well, okay. So we've hit on a lot of topics that you and I want to get into. So when, when you started... Um, writing did you know that you were going to go indie did you know what indie was did you want to go self-published like uh, traditionally published so 15 years ago about that's you know indie publishing was still like eh, it was in its it was in its formative stage its first formative stage yes Uh, well when i first my first three books i i was i had an agent and uh, and this is I'd worked with a fellow named Jory Sherman, who was uh, my coach 
he was a, a poet in San Francisco during the beat period and all this. Wow. And running, running buddies, Bukowskis and all this kind of stuff. And uh, been nominated for a Pulitzer and all that kind of thing. He was your coach? He was my coach. And oh, I met him. Nice. I, I met him uh, through a writing group in Northeast Texas Writers Organization. Okay. He was he was kind of the uh, emeritus guy in the group. But anyway, uh, so through him, I ended up with an agent and all this kind of stuff. And I didn't experience the rejection that a lot of people have about agents. I just experienced silence. <laughs> yes. Um, and my agent kept kept telling me, just keep writing, keep writing, and you know, we'll keep working and we'll keep writing. And about the time I was finishing the trilogy of that, those books uh, was when indie stuff was really starting to come into its own a little bit or starting to exist, really, with the coming of the Kindle and all mm -hmm. this. And um, I had a partner at that time, and we were working on a uh, web page called Venture Galleries, which was about authors and writers and book and, and book buyers. And uh, we just made the decision among ourselves because he'd been published. He'd had 50 books, you know. Oh, wow. Um, we just decided we're going to do the indie deal. Okay. And so we, we just jumped in with both feet and, and started doing it. And it's morphed down through the years, but the, fundamentally it's it's uh, basically the same principle as it was when it was getting started. It, was that around 2010? Just, when did the Kindle come out? Around, around yeah, then, 2009, yeah, about that. That's about right. About 12 years ago, probably. Isn't that crazy? That's a long time ago. I remember getting my first Kindle and being like, ooh, this is so exciting. And then realizing I couldn't get every book on there because the traditionally published didn't want any ebooks. They didn't want anything to do with it. And now we're really starting to talk politics, right? Yeah, we are. <laughs> if nobody knows the the book publishing world, <laughs> this is more of a no-no to talk about uh, than politics. So you guys... Did you ever publish traditionally, or did you just keep that agent never came back to you with a contract? Or uh, I called her at one point, and I said, listen, uh, uh, I have this guy, just like I was just telling you about. He and I think that Indy's the way to go, and uh, I just asked her to, you know, give give me back the, any interest that she had in, the, in mm. the three books that she was pitching, and uh, we parted on good terms. I mean, that's good. Uh, yeah, that sort of deal. But, you know, I still find myself, um, this is where I'm going to show um, uh, my double personality, but uh, I still find myself occasionally sending stuff into a, a, a publishing house just on, on a whim, you know, Yeah. see what happens. I mean, there's no harm, no foul. No. Right? I mean, I do wonder if they might become more of the people who are like the middleman to other media this is just me thinking as I'm, as I look for, I'm working right now looking for agents for somebody. And a lot of them, I don't know if you've looked lately, they are now media companies. And so they'll handle the rights to other media formats, um, which yeah. might be how they survive. You know, um, I mean, the traditional publishing area, I'm not in it. I'm not an insider, don't know anything, but from the outside, it looks like it's about to really change let's say i i don't want to say crash but it's a, it looks like it's going to change a lot well i don't know did you follow have you been following that case of uh i did for a while has, did they did they decide what they i think doing? it's i think it's just under submission I, I don't believe there was a jury involved in that i think it was a case just tried to the judge 
okay. and, and I, I checked on it a couple of days ago to see if there, if I had missed, you know, yeah. something about a, a verdict or something, but as, as best I can tell, it's just under submission. I mean, the judge is still considering it and there've been more briefings that have been done and all that. And, uh, as a matter of fact, I've got one of these notes. This was part of the discussion that's been going on and about traditional versus, uh, well, you know, the book, the, the, that case was basically about the top 1200 authors, uh, that, whose salaries advances are $250,000 and above. Right. And so it's really not about the vast majority of even people that have been published on right. major publishers. Uh, but they did, there were some statistics they had about how many books sell on, on the print side. And one of the, one of the findings was that 66% of print books in the last year from the top 10 publishers sold less than 1,000 copies in 12 months. Of print copies. That's unbelievable. Print copies, paper copies. And, uh, that, that kind of causes you to pause and say, well, somebody, what, what that tells you is the game is all about the handful of people at the top. Yeah. On the major publishing side. Yeah. So even if you're, a, you know, it, there's, there's something about the, the, like, the ego compliment, I guess, um, when the traditional wants to publish your book, because it is saying that not only do you think your book is good, but that quite a few, at least two, three other people whose job it is to search for books think your book is, is something, you know? So I think that it's, it's still something that writers desire because of that. You know, they desire that sort of like in with the in crowd of the people, <laughs> the people we consider who know something, but something's going wrong in that business. I, I just don't understand how they could keep going. Um, well, I, I'll give you an example of that first thing you were talking about when I was first beginning to write fiction. You know, I guess like a lot of people, I started writing short stories before I jumped into long form fiction. Right. And when I had, uh, and I started submitting stuff to contests and stuff like that. And uh, one of the contests I submitted to was to the short, short, short story contest for Writer's Digest. So I submitted this little story. It had to be under. I think 2,500 words or something like that. And, uh, so I get a, I get a note back from them that I was, I had made the cut and I was going to be in the top, I think it's the top 25 short, short stories. Nice. So, so, uh, when it came out, I think, uh, they had them ranked one through 25 or whatever it was. And mine was like number 17 or something like that. And, uh, I remember thinking, well, shoot, 17. I mean, I, th I thought I <laughs> I felt disappointing at being number 17. Then, I, then they had a note that said we had 7,000 entrants. Wow. So, yeah, we want, a, we want that little bit of praise. Yeah. Uh, and even if we had, then if we get it, then we feel bad because. <laughs> because it wasn't one. <laughs> wasn't, praise, wasn't enough praise, you know. So. Well, goodness, I thought I'd be in the top three. No. <laughs> I think. I may be number one. I just forget about it. Yeah, writers are notoriously just pessimistic, I think, on everything. Yeah. <laughs> but I think um, the the one thing I like about indie publishing is really there aren't any gatekeepers, right? So whatever whatever is happening in traditional, 
Um, and, and they can, there's a lot of talk on there. They're trying to open the gates wider for lots of people, but indie wise, anybody can publish. Um, and it's just on your shoulders to get your book out in front of, front of people. Right. So there, there's no, nothing stopping you really, except for work (laughs) and, and more work, I guess. So that's that's one thing I like about indie publishing. Nobody can tell you no, basically. You can upload your book and you can get it out there. Of course, one of the bad things about indie publishing is anyone can upload their book <laughs> and anyone can read it. And so indie indie books have sort of this sometimes bad rap of not being having stories fully developed or fully edited uh, or things like that. Um, is that one of the reasons why you went into book coaching to sort of help help authors have a fully developed, fully edited book out there? Or, or did you go into it because you benefited from it with your book? Well, well, there's some of both. I mean, it was a natural thing for me because I went through it for, I, I think Jory coached me for about three or four years and uh, it was fantastic for me. Well, yeah, was, Pulitzer Prize winner is a nice book coach. I would never let him go. Well, <laughs> Well, and uh, well, he was just nominated for the Pulitzer. He didn't win, but well, that's still, okay, still so a great honor. You're right. <laughs> but I, mean, I, I haven't been nominated for one yet. So Me either. <laughs> uh, uh, but, I mean, his approach, I guess one of the reasons we got along so well, and I, and I valued, I cherished that so much, is because he, he was always trying to pull the best out okay. in me. And he would say, if I if I wrote something that he didn't really like, he wouldn't jump on me about it. He'd just say, well, Steve, you can do better than that, mm. you know, and uh, point me kind of in the certain in a certain direction. And and as a book coach, uh, I guess my answer to your question is, it doesn't matter to me what the person's goal is mm. for the book. I mean, whether they if they're trying to break in with a traditionally published deal. And they just want some input and some advice and some help. And I, I think that's good. If they just want a book that they're going to send to their kids and grandkids about growing up in East Texas, well, that's that's a beautiful and valuable thing to them. Yeah, absolutely. So I just think that the notice of being in the 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 deal of being an encourager, uh, and, and some of that is some there is some hard talk that sometimes goes with it. Of you know this. You're going to have to work on this, you know. Mm. Uh, it's not like you just give everybody a rubber stamp and say whatever you want to write, and 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 you know, don't give them some some good objective feedback, right? But, but I think you are encouraging. You want to yes. do it in the context of encouragement. I like that. Yeah, you're kind of the the person who encourages. So, what for anyone who doesn't really know what a book coach is, or I know we coach sort of gets slapped on a lot of things these days. Can you, can you tell us like what it entails, what somebody gets if they, if they look for a book coach? Well, there's kind of a, I don't know if there's a consensus or not uh, out there among people that are holding themselves out as book coaches. It's a, it's been an undefined Mm. term up until fairly recently. It's taking a little bit more, uh, the, the edges are getting a little more concrete now, I guess. But uh, one of the easiest ways to talk about it is just just think where the person is in their writing life. Are they 
have they not started the book yet and they want to start it well they don't believe me they don't know what they're talking about they don't know they don't know how to write a book it's not just start writing mm -hmm. then there's the people that are halfway through that get stuck and can't figure out why they're stuck then there's the people that are always already at the end they're trying to figure out what to do with their manuscript or with their pitch to an agent so i guess where you find the person kind of define kind of defines what your role is oh, okay and a book coach is as you you know the answer to these questions as well as i do uh, a book coach is there to help the person to find them where they are and take them to where they would like to be. Right. They need oh, to that's be. a good definition, though. There you go. Yeah, I mean, for me, it, it's some people go and get their MFA, right? Their Masters of yeah. whatever that stands for. Fine Arts. Fine Arts. I was like, wait, I wanted to say fiction at that point. And I was <laughs> like, that's not right. <laughs> and so a lot of, a lot of, um, I have spoken to many, many people who have gotten their MFAs. And I, it sounds like they get a lot of guidance. They get a lot of feedback. and um, But not everyone can do that, whether it's the time or money. I do think a lot of people do sit down and start writing a book and find themselves thinking, why is this way harder than reading a book? <laughs> I read a lot. Why is it so hard to write one? And then um, I am trying to encourage people a lot to um, to find a book coach. I think they're more like what editors used to be, where editors, you know, used to guide yeah. a writer through a whole book. Like, you know, Fitzgerald didn't just write his book and send it in ever. He had a, a partner who was his editor um, and they, he would get and feedback. So did Hemingway. And so did Hemingway, yeah. you know, this was never a thing to, to isolate writers by themselves and that they would never get feedback. I don't know why we've made that a thing in the modern, modern times. Well, uh, the thing, uh, and I don't have an MFA uh, my daughter's my daughter's got a, a bachelor in fine arts and creative writing, uh, but she hasn't done her master's. But uh, frankly, uh, I think the notion of academic needing an ac academic stamp of some sort in order to be good at writing or coaching writing is a little bit off the, off base because it's your life experience that you bring to it. And then not so much, you know, the academic discipline. Uh, most people with the MFA are going to tell you the same thing about the structure of a story. Mm -hmm. It all depends on what they come out of, what, you know, I'm afraid to use this word, but which indoctrination <laughs> they they get through their uh, uh, master's degree. Right. And it can it can be very difficult for them to jump outside of that and be and be free to write because they're they keep thinking this got to be a certain got to meet certain standards or and, and i don't use that in a negative sense i mean let's just say word count for instance it means in order to write a full-length book it's a thriller you got to have seventy-five thousand words or whatever yeah well who who says my the answer professor. To that question, <laughs> yeah that's right the answer to that question is my professor or my agent right or the publisher the publishing house yeah, and it's funny the things that we th we learn about as writers as you as you continue writing books you l learn about developing your character's worldview, right? Like you hit on this a little bit on your your coming of age for adult stories. Like it's really your worldview being challenged 
But as writers, as anybody, professors, whoever, we all have a worldview. And there are, I mean, imagine like being able to go get your MFA under Vanigo back in the 70s or 60s, sure. whenever he was teaching. That's going to be completely different than getting your MFA under, I don't even know how who to name, somebody else, you know, where their yeah. worldview is all about whether or not you've maybe been published before or whether you're doing the right story. I mean, you can still find coaches and editors, unfortunately, who will tell you that you need to shape a story in a certain way because that's how they like it. And I personally don't think that that's how any editor or any book coach should ever treat them, you know, but of course you're going to come in. It Humans are going to be humans, you know, there, there's going to be that, that issue there. Well, and it's the natural born storyteller part of the human psyche that really is what you're trying to tap into mm -hmm. we know how to write stories because we've heard stories all our lives i right. mean we've been saturated in stories throughout our life and so it's just kind of tapping into that that thing that's already there uh and the, the, there's no no telling what story you're going to jump out of you once you let it start yeah <laughs> once, once you start getting it on paper you, i don't know whether you're a pantser or a plotter but too much of a uh, cancer. That's you know, that. you start writing out of the blue, or say you sit down and you write a write a short story, uh, just in one sitting. You didn't know what you know. Something has happened that you can't even really explain, and that's on that paper. Yep. And that's just a wonderful thing, in my view. Yeah, and I don't know about you when you when you started writing. At, um, did you ever come to the place where you just sort of had that? You either had a character or a plot in mind, and so you start writing. And then I think a lot of, of writers, like, things happen. <laughs> it doesn't quite go exactly where you think it's going to go because somehow our brains just start, you know, sending words to our fingers and, and words come out. And I think sometimes if, you know, I say I'm a pantser, not enough of a plotter because I sort of sometimes find myself in in a hole, <laughs> you know, and I'm learning, um, I'm learning, I've spent a couple of years like learning how to not get into that hole or not go as deep as before, you know, and sort of get out. But I think that a book coach is one person. If, if you don't want to do it by yourself, if you don't want to read all the books, if you don't want to do all the webinars that can sort of help you figure that out, because a lot of times for me, it's like a person or an instance. And I really want to get that out on paper. And then you're not quite, I don't got to figure out the rest of it. <laughs> Well, there's so many things that I think about while you're while you're talking and things you're bringing up. Uh, James Lee Burke, I don't know if you're familiar with him. Mm -mm. Uh, he's he's uh, he has several books that have been made into motion pictures. Uh, uh, he writes about New Orleans and and a homicide detective there. And anyway, uh, I, I read an article he did for Writer's Digest. And he said that, and he's written 40 novels. Oh. Uh, he says that every day he sits down to write and he writes two scenes. He doesn't, he, he stops the day with a scene. He starts with a new scene, writes two scenes. He never knows what the scenes are going to be. He just knows he's going to write two scenes. And uh, that sounds, that sounds really bizarre to some people, but uh, that's the way his mind works yeah. developing a story and that's what the pantser thing is all about i've never i've never run into 
writer's block. It's not something that's ever been a problem with me. No. Some it's, it's usually a matter of finding, deciding which story I want to tell. Yeah. <laughs> is, is there a story to tell? Right, right. Because it can change if you if your character starts doing something else, right? Or if you sort of change up, bring somebody new in. And Are you a pantser well, or a plotter? Uh, I'm not supposed to tell. <laughs> I tell you, well, I have to kill you. <laughs> That's right. No, I, I still very much consider myself a pantser. Mm. Uh, but I'll give you an example of the first book that I wrote. I thought about that book for many years, mm-hmm. and it was the concept of the book that I stuck in my head. You know about my training in religion. Well, I'd always wanted to write a contemporary Christ story. Uh, the Idiot is Dostoevsky's example. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, been many examples down through the years. So what you're trying to do is write a story about somebody that really is the, a true person. What's it like to be a true person in the current world? And so that was always the underlying theme that I was dealing with. When I started putting it down on the page, it just just did all sorts of things. I mean, it I didn't have it planned out. It's right. just like, wow, look at this. How about that? Uh, but it was the result of many years of thinking about the notion. And then finally, it just kind of spills out on the page. Yeah, that's something we don't talk about a lot is the time invested in thinking about a book. Do you think that counts as the time that you, I don't know, I like I talked to somebody, it doesn't really count as the time writing. But I do think the more you think about a book, the easier it is to sit down and write it. Well, I'll give you a, a, a parallel in my, one of my professions, in the law profession. If I'm trying a case, if I know a case is going to start six weeks from now, mm-hmm. my wife would be the one that would could really give you the down and dirty on this. I go into this fugue sort of state where I can't do anything except think about that case. It just consumes all of my time and all my energy, and that's the only thing I can think about. And then, then you try the case, and then it's over with, and you go on something else. But I think books are the same way. You There's the lead-up to them where it's the story starting to get in your head and it's starting to grab you. You're starting to turn it over and think about the various twists and turns. Then there's the you get started, and you start putting things down on the page. Then it really, then the fugue state really takes over. At that point, for me, I can't think about anything other than that book. I've got to get it on the page and I, you know, come hell or high water, I'm going to got to stick with it until I get through with it. Okay. So how long does it usually take you to write a book? Well, if we're talking about, let's say a 70,000 word novel, Hmm. uh, I would say about four months probably. Okay. And do you, do you overwrite at this point or are you pretty good about not overwriting? Like, do you have to throw out a lot of scenes or do you? I go back to Jory Sherman. I ask him one of the first questions I ask him is how much rewriting did he do? Because I've always heard of all this rewriting that people do. And he said, I don't rewrite. Uh, of course he was, he was where he was in his career, but I, I do minor modifications and it's usually the result of beta readers and that kind of deal. If somebody, something's not clear to someone, then I say, well, if it's not clear to them, i got to clean it up and all that. But uh, I don't go back and rework the story. But you, Unless somebody just tells me it's not working. That's you not know, working. It's so do you think that that's a result of 
spending time thinking about the story before you write it? Because if you I don't, think it is. Yeah. I think I think a lot of it is because I've already, and this maybe this comes from the legal training too, because Abraham Lincoln said he spent uh, a third of his time thinking about what he was going to say, and two thirds of his time thinking about what what the other people were going to say, <laughs> what the guy on the other side was going to say, and I think books are like that. What the part of that process is you're you're doing test examples of the story in your mind mm -hmm. and then you're running it to ground yourself you're saying ah, that's cheesy or whatever mm -hmm. and so you're kind of self-editing before it ever gets on the page right so. yes i have a, a tendency towards the dramatic and so i have to keep <laughs> myself in my head and then they all die you know <laughs> uh no we're not can't kill them all off cat well um, you know there's plenty of plenty of stories where they've killed them all off so. <laughs> oh yes yeah, so i just need to get rid of this person <laughs> <laughs> tired of this character um it's the funny things that happen so how many books have you written at this point uh i think i'm about i think i'm at 11 11 novels i've written a few other little non-fiction things and handbook type things stuff like that i'm not counting them in that but okay uh and i write i've got one one novel that's in the can right now i was just telling you about and i've started two other novels by the way one of the things i do for relief for comic relief is to write comedies write funny stories okay so i've written one book that's just a comedy and it's got a character called gil the pill Gil the Pill has a little trouble with, with Oxycontin and that kind of stuff. But he is, his book's written from his perspective as the knucklehead. And uh, it kind of lets me get some stuff out of, out of my system. <laughs> so he has a whole... Uh, these are not short stories, though. These are novels? It's a novel? No, uh, I've written one novel. I'm working on another one. Okay, I like And that. I think that's the indie deal because you need... You can do whatever you, you want. You need series, though, right? I know. <laughs> do you write all of them under under Stephen Woodfin, or do you have I different? Do. Okay, I write them all under Stephen Woodfin. See, there is this other argument too that we should have different pen names for different genres. I wouldn't, I wouldn't disagree with it, but it just, I never have seen the reason for it myself. Yeah, I don't know. I'm just not good enough at marketing to think <laughs> that I'd be able to handle several pen names. <laughs> well, you got something you're working on right now. Oh, yeah, I'm always, you know, I'm not, I don't stick to one genre. So because you said the magic word series, yes, I figured that out um, too late, but I'm going back and writing um, uh, sequels, you know, sort of making, forcing it to become a series. So my historical fiction will be a series. And then the contemporary one I'm working on now is purposely a duology. And I've never written purposely as two books or more so that's an interesting interesting way to go i i've never i i was never into reading series so it wasn't even a thing in my head to think about and when i published in 2017 i published by myself and i had spent so much time my kids were little just trying to get the book done that i sort of missed out on the hint hint you need a series <laughs> Well, in my case, it was the agent that I had at the time. And I, when I first started with her, I just had the first book written. Uh, and she and I asked her, well, what am I supposed to be doing while you're doing what you're doing? And she said, well, just keep writing. 
And I said, well, like what? She said, well, they, you know, publishers love series. So you need to write you a trilogy or something. So, so I wrote a trilogy because that was what because she, she suggested. Told you, yeah. But I've noticed now that, that my books have always kind of lumped together either by either because they have a particular character that I enjoy writing about mm-hmm. who appears in the different books. So I've got about three series that are, that, Happened not really because I was thinking about writing series. They just had to do with the characters. Oh, you keep the character going. Well, that's kind of cool, though. It's not like they're sort of standalone, but you can go find the character somewhere else. Yeah, but now in in the new marketing world, I'm getting ready to jump back into, which is not really new, by the way. uh, I'm going to, you know, package those more as series and stuff like that. Right. And moving moving forward, I'm going to be more... are they called like interlinked series. series, I think, or something like that? They have everything has its own name now. Yeah. So would you would you advise people that you're coaching if they are looking um not to just write something for their, their immediate family, but to, you know, be an author at some point, you know, fully financed possibly by books, would you tell them that they should write a series? I think I would. I, I one thing comes to mind that a uh, fellow I was working with a couple of years ago and up up until earlier this year, uh, he had written a a uh, Vietnam memoir. Mm. He was a Vietnam vet. He'd written a memoir, and, that, and I had helped him kind of in the final stages of that. And he came to me and he said, I really feel like I want to write another book. And uh, And he was wanting to get completely away from that and just do a romance book written from a male perspective nice. and he started working on it and uh and he just ran into a brick wall he just couldn't get there and he said well i'm going to go back and write the second part of this memoir about vietnam so i mean i'm just using that as an example of somebody that wanted wanted there to be a break between the books and not just carry keep telling the same story it didn't it didn't work for him, but I think most people, if you caught them early in the process, maybe before they'd written the first book, mm-hmm. it'd be be easier to direct them towards a series. Well, yes, because now that I'm writing sequels to my historical fiction, I have to go back and remember what everyone was doing. Yeah, one of the toughest things about this whole gig, as far as I'm concerned, is remembering what I wrote in the book. I know. What's the name of the character? <laughs> it is your own made-up character. It's crazy how this or you'll happens. Or you'll be writing a scene and you'll say, I've written this scene before somewhere. Yeah. You know, and you'll find this scene that you've already written. You know? Oh, that's the worst. <laughs> but if you write yours in about four months, do you? you might not come up against that as much anymore do you think or or does that still happen where you sort of rewrite a new the same scene or forget where you are in the book i don't know i, I see to me it seems like i tend to settle into writing scenes a certain way mm. you know for instance uh on the on the legal thriller type books it seems like i always tend to start when the person has already committed the crime or whatever Case is getting ready to get started, and they come in to to tell the attorney about it. So there's you're about halfway into the story when it, when it first starts. I just find that that's that's my default way of starting the case. It's not necessarily the right way to do it, 
So I don't know whether I'll get out of that or not. I think there's a certain structure that goes with the series concept. They yeah. want the book to be structured the way this other book in the series sure. was structured. Yeah, you start you start wondering if it's the same author, if it's not structured the other, the same way, right? Yeah. Uh, do you think when you're – have you worked with somebody that they haven't started working? Do you, do you advise people to start at the beginning or how would you advise someone um, – do you start at the beginning or – how do you how do you coach that? Never start at the beginning. Never. <laughs> you know, uh, Sid Field, who was the screenplay writer that was legendary, mm -hmm. he had a deal that said uh, one of his famous quotations was, "You should always arrive late and leave early." And that, to me, is the, what you want to do is. You got to be at the point in the story where the thing's really clicking. Something's really already happened that needs explaining. And if you're telling it chronologically, uh, you know, you got to tell too much of the story before where you get to the good part, I guess you'd say. Yeah, that's true. I think you got to jump right off. I think you got to jump off into it. Then you can go back to it uh, and explain it as you go along or flesh it out. And I, I've found myself writing in first person the last. Three or four books that I've written, oh, okay. which has also kind of changed sort of the way that I structure, think about structure, all that. Yeah, of course. So you wrote in third person and now you like first. Started out writing in third person, which where you could see everybody, you could see what everybody was doing all over the place. Oh, okay. Did you have different um, point of views in each book? Yeah, I didn't know it at the time. <laughs> I know. Did you, did you hear about head hopping from somebody else? Yeah. You know what's interesting though, I think you we've talked about this before in our group is the Euro European books head hop all the time and it's not a big deal. It's a traditionally published, very well known books will head hop all the time. They don't care. I think that is one of the things that this goes back to that uh uh academic writing that we were talking about earlier. Now, that has become such a thing in American coaching or master fine arts or whatever, uh, that everybody's become self-conscious about it. Yeah. And I don't think a reader thinks about it a bit. I don't think it bothers them at all. No. In fact, I went back. I, I don't think I noticed it until my I took a few classes and people like slammed me for it in my short stories. <laughs> you know? I was like, oh, what are, we, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I knew enough with my first book to, because it's a historical romance. So, you know, it's either the male perspective or the female perspective. And so I sort of knew how to keep those more or less separate. Um, but I didn't notice that I did it a lot in short stories. So it got pointed out. And I really think I only started noticing it because, you know, once it's pointed out to you, you see it everywhere. It's like the, the red car you want to buy. <laughs> yeah. And, and to me, people are not really doing a ride or a service, depending on how they approach that conversation. But if they just say, oh, you got to quit head hopping and, and you're going, what the heck is head hopping? And uh, right. whereas if 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 they say something like, well, you've got various points of view here. I just only pointed out just so you'll you can be aware of it. I mean, you can do whatever you want to do with it. I think that's a different approach that it's just as good. Uh, yeah, but I, I don't go ahead. I would love to go back and see some older books and maybe maybe see if they do head hop. All these books that we loved as as kids or 
Uh, I think you'll find that there's there's all sorts of head hopping in it. Uh, I bet there is. Uh, uh, one of my friends is a Hemingway aficionado. There's a famous story about Hemingway. He went on a story that he short story, not a, a anecdote. Uh, it's, it's something, the strange life of some character. His name, I can't think of what it is. But it's about a husband and wife that are on a safari in Africa. And the the story is told from the husband's point of view, the wife's point of view, and the lion's point of view. That's getting ready to jump on him and eat him alive. <laughs> and I'm going, well, today people would think that was just crazy. Yeah. How that, was Ernest, that was Ernest Hemingway. You're going to confuse the reader. <laughs> I think in in our effort to be kind to the reader, we almost treat the reader as not very intelligent sometimes, and and assume that the reader is not going to understand something. No, like like you said, if sometimes you write, there are times that I notice head hopping because it's confusing. Yeah, oh, like it can be confusing. Yeah, but sometimes it's not at all. You don't even notice it. And talking about confusing is another thing that is a current thing. Is this whole thing about dialogue tags? Yes. And you know Robert Parker, who's who wrote Jesse Stone books and all this. I mean, very famous guy, so zillion books. Uh, what are you going to do next? He asked. I'm going to do this. He said. I mean, that's the way his his books were sixty thousand words, or maybe maybe more like fifty thousand because they were all short dialogue. Every one of them had a tag on it. Mm-hmm. It never bothered me a bit. No, it never bothered and, me either. And now somebody coming out of a lot of schools, they're specifically instructed, never use a tag if you can get away with it. The, the, you ought to be able to, you ought to be able, the reader should be able to tell who, who is speaking by the way you write the scene. But I mean, so what? I mean, why you're helping the reader. If the reader gets confused, because you can go through a page back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, somewhere in there, you got to do a tag, or the reader's going to get lost as to who's speaking. Right. It it definitely we come up with these rules, and we don't put we don't really put them into genres because the I talk to a lot of romance readers and writers, and they're very confused all of a sudden because in romance it used to be very much about tagging the emotion of how they were speaking, and now yeah. you're supposed to only say said. Or nothing. And they're all like, but that's not how any of the books I ever grew up reading were. It was exclaimed and whispered and, you know, murmured. And it was all yeah. this stuff. And now they say no. I, I read, uh, is it To the White, To the Lighthouse? Or, yeah, To the Lighthouse. Uh, Virginia, Virginia Woolf's, one of her famous, famous novels. It's a short book, but there are a hundred points of view. And every, all the dialogue has got the sort of things you're talking about. And it's considered one of the greatest novels of the 20th century. I'm going, so where did the, where did the change occur from that being one of the great books of the 20th century to we can't write like that anymore? It's very frustrating. Who says? I know. Who said? I do think that's the great thing about indie books. Indie books done well don't have to, Pay attention to that sort of rigid uh, yeah. academic approach to writing. Well, in indie indie books done well can mean anything, right? Because again, talking about certain genres, if you're writing a legal thriller, 
you need to write how legal thriller readers expect the book sure. to be sure. written, right? Not not the maybe New York Times literary reader expects right. the book to be written. I mean, I just finished a book. Um, you know, around here, there's all these little mini libraries, the like little yeah. bird stand. They look like little yeah. bird houses. Yeah. Um, so I grab books from there all the time. Um, and this book is very far away. Like the the point of view is so far away. It's almost like you're sort of observing. You're very disconnected from the characters. Um, and it's very well received, it says. It's, it has all these different, you know, quotes from well-known um, authors. But that's that's an interesting book. It's clearly, it's traditionally published. And I'm not sure what genre it goes into other than literary, you know, um, I like it for the creativity, but um, it's definitely written for a certain genre. And if you're going to write romance, it needs to be well-written for the romance reader. And that doesn't mean the same thing as legal thrillers or Southern noir or historical fiction, you know, all the different things. Well, you got off, you got off on one of those other topics is, that, I, that always gets to me is this literary fiction notion. <laughs> I think it's now called upmarket. <laughs> uh, upmarket, okay. See, I'm so far behind the times. I didn't even know what upmarket. I don't even meant. know what that means. I'm just looking at. <laughs> I guess up maybe with people with their nose in there. That's what the uh, what the up the upmarket. Uh, looking but, down on yeah. us midlist commercial fiction. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I I. It's a tone, right? Yeah. Uh, literary fiction is a tone. And I like reading in that tone some, mm-hmm. but I can't stand, I can't stand re- a steady diet of it. Yeah. And uh, I mean, you don't have to be, you don't have to be an elitist to be a writer. Right. Yes. You know, as a matter of fact, it's the other ways, what you were saying before, it's, it's being able to communicate with your audience and a very sp- specific audience is what makes you a writer. Yeah, and and I mean, I, I I could put long words together in a sentence and write forty word sentences if I wanted to, but uh, that's just showing off as far as I'm concerned. Yes, I agree. <laughs> I agree. Or it, it's writing in that way that they used to make us read those books, and you know, like Dickens or something. Yeah. <laughs> oh my yeah. gosh, I used to count. <laughs> I used to count the pages. You know, how many more pages do I have left of this? I more mean, people. More people have been uh, have been ruined as writers from ever becoming writers by having to read those books in the ninth, tenth, eleventh grade, or whatever it was. That you just you just stuck. You couldn't stand those books. It was like pulling teeth. Why? Right. I've asked teachers. I've asked professors before. Why in the heck is the only book that's a classic something that's at least fifty years old? What do they say? Yeah, they just look at you like, well, it takes a long time. And, oh yeah, blah blah. Well, tell me what's tell me what's a classic now. If you if you're the all knowing Bah here, tell me what's what's which books that are on the shelves right now are going to be classics. Well, I nobody. Nobody so, can tell. <laughs> nobody can tell. I guess it's just safe. You know, if you say, if you teach about Hemingway, you can say, well, everybody thinks he's great. So you don't have to worry about You don't have to worry about that it. That part of it. Some, some parts of his book don't make any sense. <laughs> 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 well, and I did, 
I enjoyed reading the artful edit and realizing that Fitzgerald didn't know what he was doing half the time. I did enjoy it. <laughs> like, okay, so all these people we think were great, they too didn't know what they were doing at times. Because really, you know, we have a character in our head, we have a story we want to tell, and, and putting it from our brain to the paper in 60,000 words is not as easy as we all think it's going to be. No, nothing easy about it that I've seen. It's enjoyable to the writer. I mean, if you don't like it, you yeah. shouldn't be writing, I yeah. guess is what I'm saying. It's thrilling for me to to be putting words on a page, and it just gives it just a really natural high for me to do it. Uh, but it's not easy. Right, right. I agree with that. Yes. So if if somebody is looking for some or thinking about writing a book or maybe stuck in their book, is there any um, genre or niche that you you only work with or do you work across the board? Well, you know, I, I guess it all depends on what's presented to me, you know, the way to go at it. But I'm basically a mainline writer sort of guy, you know, thrillers, all the stuff we've already talked about that are generally considered to be kind commercial of mainline, mainline commercial fiction. I mean, okay. I, I really wouldn't. Uh, my my students are going to fall into the certain category and they're probably going to be a slightly more advanced age than your students are going to be, and then, which is going to also have to do with what kind of stuff they're interested in writing. I think that this is also a, an area, writing books. I think it's great if young people can write books. There's a, there's a Spanish writer right now. She's about 19 and has this incredible series out. I mean, it's just amazing to me. But I think as with most arts in this society that we live with in, People over 50 have more, way more stories to tell than people who are 20. And I, I really wish that we wouldn't only look at the young people. Well, you, you've, the irony of it is that most of the people that buy books in this country are over 55. Right. The huge majority of books sold are sold to people over 55. But that doesn't mean that the people writing the books over 55. I, I don't know how to, how all that fits together. Um, now, a lot of young people are buying a lot of books now, too, that are in that, you know, that 20 to 20 to 40 age range. Uh, but it's one of the things that always uh, amazes me when I start trying to work on a uh, marketing campaign. Is it, so really, if I, if I want to do the right marketing campaign, I need to target 65-year-old women Probably. as my target group. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> well, I think uh, um, James Patterson said that he wrote, he writes um, directly towards the people who don't, don't normally read. He wants people. He writes in very short sentences, very, yeah, you know, yeah. not upmarket, very commercial. And he wants people to fall in love with reading again after having quit it after Dickens. <laughs> I mean, it's really, <laughs> we should, I mean, I think that's an incredible goal. I, I like, I kind of, I kind of think I'll steal that goal. I think it's a great well, goal. Well, a friend of mine, the guy that I did the project with venture galleries named Caleb Pirtle. Caleb was a journalist and he also worked at uh, Southern uh, writing magazine. He was an editor there and all this. Uh, uh, he, had an opportunity to interview uh, Patterson early in his career when he was first starting to write his novels. Patterson was, James Patterson 
was a very successful ad man. Yes. That's where he, that's the background he came out of. And he told uh, Caleb in that interview, uh, I just want, I wanted to see if I could take the same principles that I used when I was writing ads and use it for people that are reading. Mm -hmm. An ad that will grab, just grab you right off the bat. So it's, it's three page chapters, short words, punchy fiction. And, but you can't put the thing down. Right. Right. I mean, it's a sense of accomplishment. He also wrote short stories. So he honed his craft. You know, he practiced writing. Besides being an ad man, you're writing all the time and you're seeing what, what works. You know, what, what are people reacting to and what are they not reacting to? That's right. I mean, he's highly successful. Some of my friends don't like him, <laughs> but I can't deny that the guy knows what he's doing. Well, Caleb, uh, he, he has the best quote that I've ever know, heard about writer's block. And it's in the, think of that context you just talked about where James Patterson was, for a living, was writing, writing, writing all the time. And if he didn't come up with something, he, he didn't come up with something to write, it was going to reflect on his job and all that. Caleb said that the best cure for writer's block is an empty refrigerator. <laughs> You've got to write it. You're not going to make any money if you don't work. keep going keep going. That's true. Yeah, thankfully, um, most of us hold separate jobs while <laughs> writing. I don't know. Thankfully, though, I would like for all writers to be able to may earn all their money on writing, but that's not usually possible these days. Well, the the the, the great tradition is uh, the day job. You know, you got to work a day job. and uh, I've been fortunate enough that I've had a day job that's allowed me to spend time both ways. But uh, I know some people don't like referring to the starving artists and all this kind of stuff. Uh, but I mean, the reality of it is that most writers cannot make enough, enough writing to support their families. So part of being being willing to be a writer is being willing to work before your kids get up in the morning or mm -hmm. after they go to bed or whatever. And that's just uh, paying dues. Yeah. Paying dues. Yeah. I do think that if, you, if you're starting out, even if you're not starting out, I really, I've been talking to another writer friend of mine and it seems around sometimes the third book or the new series that you have to come up with is hard to get into because it's a whole new thing, you know, or you, your third book, you really should know what you you're doing so you suddenly have this pressure. So it doesn't just happen to first book writers, but if you take the time getting a coach and sort of invest that money well in somebody that's really going to guide you through, I do think that you will end up making money sooner than if you don't because you'll have the confidence in your book in the story, you'll know where you're going from there. You sort of have that encouragement like you were saying of, you know, how about this? Like, we can't always come up with the same thing, or we might we might know that a scene is dry, but not know how to figure it out. And if you find that person who can really work with you and bounce ideas off of you, I think things could go quicker than if you tried to do it by yourself. I agree 100%. Uh, yeah. The, if, if we're talking about indie writing, which is what you and I are gravitating towards in mm -hmm. our discussion, uh, the people that are, 
doing well and maybe quitting their day jobs on that side, I think are people that are honing their craft and uh, they're writing really good stories. They're putting their stuff out in a good packaging. You know what I'm saying? It looks mm-hmm. good. It covers good. There aren't a bunch of mistakes in it. Uh, and so it, to the extent that a coach helps you get to that level where your writing is clean and, and, uh, has a point, mm-hmm. you know, the scenes have a point and a structure to them. I think you, you're going to do well. Now, well, that means that person's going to make any money or, are they going to stick with it long enough to see if it pans out? That's a different question, I guess. Yeah, but it's a book that you are proud of. And if you, the more you learn about the craft, I think, to the, the more you'll know as you're writing the next one. So you don't know what you don't know. But if you do that for five books, um, I mean, I know several writers who had to go back and make a decision to either clean up their first few books, you know, once they learned what they didn't know before. Or take them off the market. So just yeah. as, as a pitch for, for coaching, I know a lot of indie writers out there, writers who are starting out, sort of bulk at the price of it. But if we're, are they kind of, I don't know, I think sometimes we think we can do it all by ourselves if we just had enough time or something. But there's a lot to learn in this industry. And there's a lot to learn about writing stories and storytelling and stories that will really grab people's attention. So, Well, uh, and in that category, I'd say, if you're starting a business, and I, you're talking to somebody that's been self-employed most of his life, I've also had a bookstore and a coffee shop one time that I owned. Uh, in, either, in anything like that that you consider a business, mm-hmm. uh, you realize you got to spend money right. to have the business built to what you want it to be. Mm-hmm. If you're going to do it right, and as a general rule, you wouldn't. Wouldn't blink about, and I'm just you pick numbers out of the air. Uh, you wouldn't blink about spending, let's say, fifteen hundred dollars if that was going to help you get your business up and going. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that the tendency among writers has been mainly, mainly because I guess so many of us don't have any money. They always want to do it on the cheap. Mm-hmm. When that can be, that can really be the enemy of your writing. Not, not willing to invest in your writing or on the indie side, like we were talking about investing the tools that you need to get the right, I mean, get the product looking right, get the cover art looking right. There are investments you have to make if you want, if you want to advance uh, and improve your product. Right. Or you, you might end up spending money on promotions and then getting reviews coming back from this promotion. that. Ooh. There's no story or I don't understand this. And what is this happening? Because readers these days are brutally honest. <laughs> Everyone's an, an expert critique. Um, well, I got I to tell you one story about that because uh, one of the things I did at one point, I started writing some little short novels about uh, football, college football. And uh, one of them was about it had Auburn and Alabama, who are huge rivals of each other in the football world. And uh, in the in the book, Auburn loses a game and Alabama wins a game. Well, I get this one-star review, and I go, what the heck is this? Because I'd never had a one-star review before. And it was a guy from Auburn. <laughs> it's, 
and said, what does this guy know about writing books? <laughs> and I go, well, there's a lesson to be learned there that just, all reviews don't really have anything to do with the book. Oh, it's very uh, true. Yes, <laughs> yes, it's very true. And th- that's something you sort of have to deal with for sure. Um, but that's, that. you know, that's a one one star review that if people read it, they'd be like, well, okay, this they guy is just mad. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> but at least it's not, this book is full of spelling mistakes and what is this chapter about and who is this character and that person they just forget about and uh, because that has happened as well with some writers so my whole point is is that if you're starting out and you maybe aren't I mean because you can always read a lot of books take a lot of you know courses online it might take a little bit longer if you want to do things on the cheap it is possible to do it Um, but if you kind of want um, guidance and you want your book to be really Developed really well. I think a book coach is is an option, an investment certainly, but it it can give the return quicker than than getting the reviews back. <laughs> well, I would say, and this is off the top of my head, I would say it's ten to one. By that I mean the benefit of being able to talk one on one with somebody that already has processed that information you're talking about mm-hmm. that they can go out and you know they can build their library of how to write books and they can read blogs and they can do everything else even if you do that you don't really get the guts of it you need somebody to really explain it to you mm-hmm. and if you can talk to somebody and in one hour learn what you would uh, would learn in a hundred hours of doing that then you're saving yourself god almighty so much not just expense and time but you're you're probably learning the things you really need to learn and not going off on tangents so true. that are just going to delay your writing, you know. Or getting the feedback, like you said. You might think you yeah. understand something, like head hopping, until you get feedback. You go, oh, well, that's what that means. <laughs> and then you'll have saved yourself some some time there. Well, I mean, you know, like just take a first, the first chapter of a book, somebody writes, and and you you just go back. They come or they come back to you, and or you send stuff to them. And I say, well, I don't know where this story's taking place. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, something as simple as that to let them know you've got to create. The, you're creating a world. I don't care what what you're writing. You're doing world creation. Give me a couple of sentences about where the heck is this. Describe the person when they first introduce them and stuff like that, just so people can get a mental image. Well, that's that's writing 101, but I guarantee you most people have never thought about it. They're, they're thinking about what they've already put on the page. Right. Uh, and it could, just a little bit of finessing could change it from a story that doesn't make sense to a really great story. Yes, that is so true. Um, so where can people find out more about you um, and and look into your coaching and look into your books and your services? I'm supposed to say at the post office where they post those pictures, right? <laughs> the the ten most wanted. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, WoodfinBookCoaching.com is uh, is the coaching site, and there's other stuff on there. There's resources. There's stuff about where you are in the writing life, and uh, you know what what can you what can you need? How how can we help you? Okay. Uh, there are some books listed about that are part of these research books people can read. There's actually a book that has about Southern Noir on there that's what I think is kind of one of the current ones. Uh, 
but anyway, so that's a good place to start. And my daughter, who's a daughter that's got the BFA in creative writing, there's also some stuff about her on the site. Okay. So we will have the links in the show notes. So if you guys want to check out Stephen Woodfin, both his coaching and his books and his daughter, all of the things about uh-huh. writing are on woodfinbookcoaching.com, but we'll have the links in the show notes for sure. Uh, thank you, Stephen, for coming and talking with me today. I like talking about indie writing. <laughs> Kat, thanks so much for inviting me. We've covered a lot of ground. I hope there's something that's beneficial to somebody out there. Hey, you're still listening. Since you are, could you do me a favor and head over to the app that you're listening to this episode on and hit the subscribe button and then rate and review the show? It would really help the Pencils Olympic podcast get out into the world. And if you're enjoying the podcast, well, then there might be more people out there who would enjoy it as well. If you want to find out more about me, you can head over to catcaldwell.com. I have my story over there, my books, my interactive journals, my one-on-one coaching information, and information on my creative writing community membership group. If you're looking to write a book or you are a writer and you just want to find out more about how to write, how to publish, how to format, how to market, and all the things that go into being an author these days, check out the membership group. There is a 14 free day trial that you can try it out, get into the masterminds, find out all the goodies that we are talking about in the group. I would love to see you there.